Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking today with Christopher Faulkner. Christopher is assistant professor at the United States Naval War College and focuses in his research on human security and irregular warfare with a particular interest in private military and security companies, including the Wagner Group, which we've heard quite a lot about with the current full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, and which is going to be the focus of our discussion today. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Christopher. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. My comments today will be my views alone and do not represent the, the US federal government or Department of First of all, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that this phenomenon of private military companies being involved in conflicts has gained prominence in the last couple of decades. We hear about, you know, private military contractors being involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, obviously now with the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. So could you just give us a bit of background and definition to this phenomenon of private military security companies? So like, what are they and what do they typically do? Yeah, of course. It's some interesting dynamics going in here and, and kind of taps into my, my research on irregular warfare and the nature of it. Private military and security companies are really what we'd call a post-Cold War phenomenon, so really something that maybe emerged after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's maybe a little bit disingenuous to say that they're exclusively a post-Cold War phenomenon because we do have some of these groups emerging toward the latter part of the 1980s. They're what many will refer to as the modern-day mercenary, soldiers of fortune, individuals who don't have an allegiance to a state, but rather to a paycheck. And so that's kind of the general idea of what these entities are, really born out of that soldier of fortune mentality to now codified corporations that offer military and security services to a, a wide array of clients. And so when I say clients here, they can actually serve foreign governments. Um, I'm speaking here from places like Mali, Burkina Faso has been in the news as of late, places like Mozambique. And then when we think about what they actually do, they can offer a array of services. So we might think of them as kind of dichotomized between those who provide security, logistical support, and then those that provide tip of the spear activities like actual military combat operations. And so depending on what a client actually wants, is going to depend on who they might solicit these types of services from. And maybe one last point on, on what these actors are. Um, they've really evolved, to your point. They've reemerged as a central figure in a lot of conflicts or environments across the international system. They haven't necessarily not been there in the past, but given the nature of today's modern conflicts, it's a lot easier to identify the variation of players that might be on the battlefield. You know, what we're seeing play out in Ukraine, what we've seen play out in places like Iraq and Afghanistan have really highlighted their prevalence in, in modern war zones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's very interesting to think what that might do to the dynamics of warfare when actors in the battle don't actually necessarily have allegiance to a particular nation or a particular state. Right. It's been really interesting because it's hard to regulate some of these things in a way that we might think about a traditional soldier. I and mean, that's been uh, a complicated area for international legal scholars to actually figure out how you hold individuals accountable who might be within these corporate entities Oftentimes it's a state in which that organization is registered. I mean, that creates complications because who wants to enforce? Some states don't. Others may have lenient, you know, kind of accountability metrics in place for 
individuals depending on what they're doing in in foreign conflicts. Mm -hmm. And if we focus in more specifically on the Wagner Group, whilst listeners who are following this podcast would definitely have heard the name, but could you give us a bit of context? You know, what is the background and the kinds of activities of the Wagner Group? Sure. Yeah, it's really a network of a variety of different actors, uh, really owned and bankrolled by this guy, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin is kind of this Russian oligarch who worked his way up. His nickname's Putin's cook or Putin's chef. It's really what some have called like a street vendor, a hot dog vendor, if you will, in St. Petersburg that all of a sudden entered the upper echelons of the Russian elite and has become the figurehead for this mercenary group, this private military company. So the first thing to know is that's kind of the guy that's in charge of everything, at least from the financial side of it. The organization is often thought to be founded in around 2010, or the idea of it, the conception of it in 2010 at a Russian general staff meeting. And some have equated it to this was really a, the Russian government's attempt to develop its own kind of mercenary group or private military company that the Ministry of Defense could control. That's where we first started hearing about the idea of this, this Russian private military firm. It's by no means the only private military company, but it's become the premier private, private military company for the Russian government. And that complicates matters a little bit further because when we think about private military companies, we often think of them as distinct from the state. In this case, it's very difficult to unpack that. And you'll see several organizations reporting about uh, the locations in which Wagner Group will have its, its headquarters being right down the street from a Russian intelligence service or Ministry of Defense base. And subsequently, we see a lot of carryover and what many have called it a quasi-military component of the Russian government. So with that being said, some of the activities that it actually engages in, it does kind of everything. And I, I don't say that jokingly, it really is engaged in all aspects of what private military and security companies or PMSCs might do. It provides security services, to clients in places like the Central African Republic. It's become kind of a, a security guard, a secret service, if you will, for the president there. In places like Mali, its most recent deployment, let me caveat that, its second most recent deployment since its engagement in Ukraine, but Mali is really its most recent deployment in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's been engaged in counterterrorism operations on the front lines with Malian armed forces, engaging in your traditional counterinsurgency, counterterrorism operations that have led to, you know, severe human rights abuses as of last month or two months ago. Some really interesting reporting on some of its behavior there. It's also provided logistical services to some of these client states in sub-Saharan Africa, and even in Ukraine, some intelligence gathering services. Without going too much into the weeds, I mean, the figures that make up the mercenaries that are members of the Wagner Group have kind of a diverse background. I think it was originally thought to be kind of a place where intel officers, Russian special forces would go after their career in the military. That's really how its origin kind of got off the ground. But as it's evolved over time and as it's been, quote unquote, stretched thin with all of its engagements around the world, the types of mercenaries or soldiers that are ending up in the Wagner group, uh, we're getting some really, really interesting accounts of dipping into you know, the prison system to offer an outlet, you know, go serve on the front lines here, make some money and potentially have your record expunged. And I mean, this might be a difficult question to answer because it's possible that we just don't know. But in terms of those activities, do you see those as furthering the interests of the Russian regime 
or that are a purely financial endeavor, like basically whatever they're asked to do, as long as they get paid for it, they will do it. Or are they in some ways an extension of Russian foreign policy or, you know, achieving some kind of foreign policy objectives for the Russian regime? No, that's a great question. I think it really depends on where we look. Most would probably have heard about a clash between Wagner mercenaries and United States special operators in Syria. In that case, I think it's really hard to disentangle the Russian forces from the Wagner group forces in so much that their activities there were very clearly an extension of what the Russian government's operations and, and goals were in Syria. The same could go with somewhere like Libya, where we saw kind of an entanglement between the Wagner group and, and the forces that the Russians were supporting in Libya. But then when we jump somewhere like Mali or, or uh, Central African Republic, their activities there may be less aligned with long-term Russian strategic objectives. And I say that in the sense that I think Russia has clear goals in Sub-Saharan Africa, but here it's very clearly a resource extraction for security provisions kind of relationship. Russia wants to extend influence, expand influence across this theater in particular. But I think the at the output here is also profit oriented. If we jump over to somewhere like Ukraine, this is very clearly a case of the Wagner group being utilized by the Russian government for Russian foreign policy objectives, um, in this case, territorial control. So I think it really depends on where we're kind of exploring the group's activities. Mm -hmm. The Wagner group, also seems to have a reputation for not necessarily respecting human rights. And I'm wondering if, firstly, is that impression correct? And then secondly, is that connected with the fact that they're a private military and security company, as opposed to being a state's national military force who you would at least think, you know, should be more bound by the rules of war, by international humanitarian law, etc. I think to, to the first question, is it correct that they're engaging in, in human rights violations? I think that's uh, unequivocal yes. And across all theaters that they've been involved in, I think it's pretty clear that they've done this in Libya. Uh, it's pretty clear that there was the utilization of landmines by Wagner operatives. Uh, we go somewhere like, uh, as I referenced before, Central African Republic or Mali, where the group is engaged in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations. There is reporting from the UN, substantial reporting on indiscriminate violence against civilians, kind of a let's shoot first, ask questions later kind of mentality. I mean, I think that's permeated to one aspect of the group's activities, which is training both the Central African Republic security forces and the Malian armed forces and these types of counterinsurgency efforts. I don't want to paint a picture that there weren't already problems prior to the arrival of Wagner operatives, um, but it's definitely accelerated the types of human rights abuses that we're seeing since their arrival. I don't want to misquote the figure, but I think that the Center for Strategic International Securities reported in April of 2022 that since the arrival of the Wagner Group in Mali in December of 2021, civilian fatalities have exceeded the entire 2021 figures for civilian fatalities. So kind of in a four-month span, there's been a dramatic uptick. And that's from all actors. So I'll be clear there that it isn't just the Wagner Group and the Malian Armed Forces perpetrating it, but the accounts of Wagner personnel engaging in human rights abuses, including you know murder, have been substantiated and dramatic. To your second question, if we think about 
the accountability, I'll maybe frame this this way. I think the Russian government in particular sees the utilization of the Wagner Group as kind of a scapegoat to enable these human rights abuses that might actually take place, but avoid any real accountability in it, having to hold these actors accountable. That's the beauty of plausible deniability. They're not actually Russian. We don't allow private military companies. And maybe I should caveat this. Uh, Russia has criminalized or outlawed private military companies. Um, so this is a really important aspect. It's like the Russians saying, hey, in Ukraine, we are trying to uh, fight the Nazis. Meanwhile, we have Zelensky, who is Jewish. You know, they can't reconcile this irregularity in the way they which, in which they message. It's, it's similar to how they operate with private military companies. And one way I think that we should think about private military companies more generally, it really matters where they come from. And there's some folks at the University of Liverpool who've done some really interesting research on origins of private military companies and human rights abuses. Um, and so I think that it's not peculiar that we'll see private military companies originating from Russia, engaging in serious human rights abuses. We can think back not so long ago with the U.S. private military companies operating in places like Iraq. And then we have the Nisar Square incident in which contractors, uh, you know, indiscriminately shot civilians. But there's regulations from more democratic states and their use of private military companies that are absent when we see these authoritarian regimes kind of allowing private military companies to operate with impunity. That's fascinating that the Russian government has actually banned private military companies. You might not know the answer to this, this is kind of the Russian domestic context, but that makes me wonder, is there any awareness of the activities of the Wagner Group within Russia? Or is that sort of denied that that group is even associated with the Russian regime? Yeah, I don't have any great, reliable public opinion polling about what the, the pulse might be on the Wagner Group. I think it's pretty clear that it's the worst kept secret that the Russians have, if you will. So I don't think that it's unclear. They advertise for signing up to join this, this entity. So I think it's really about messaging to the international community, you know, having this legal kind of uh, constraint on the Russian government's ability to police these organizations and what they do outside of, of the context because, quote unquote, they don't actually exist or aren't allowed here. And it kind of uh, alleviates any need for the government to monitor the organization. Then I think they utilize these actors in particular because of the domestic political backlash that you might see if we deploy the regular army to go fight a conflict or to go get engaged in what's perceived are less strategically important regions of the world. So it offers it a really nice foreign policy tool. I think the Russians are very clearly seeing value in employing an actor that they don't have to hold accountable for the crimes they might commit. And then also they don't have to sell to the population why they're sending troops to, you name said theater, that they might, to the degree that it matters, care about public opinion. I also think it's important to maybe reference here why you use the Wagner Group in a place like Ukraine. A, they're paid. B, there's a lot of discussion and research on casualty aversion. In this case, I'll put it this way, maybe a little bit crudely, when it's the regular army and a soldier dies, people care more than when it's a contractor and a contractor dies. So that really matters for democratic societies, maybe less so in the Russian context, but I do think that messaging wise, it'll become an important aspect if you see the Russia's war in Ukraine drag on, that utilizing private military 
contractors will be a way to quell any domestic unrest. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that there's been quite heavy involvement of the Wagner Group in Ukraine. Has that impacted the capacity for the Wagner Group to be involved in operations in other countries? Like, is that impacting, you know, for example, Syria, they're being sort of pulled out of there or other countries that you mentioned in sub-Saharan Africa? And is that having a sort of a geopolitical influence? So I monitor sub-Saharan Africa. It's probably my wheelhouse, if you will, where I would have a better idea of what's maybe going on. But there's definitely been at the onset of the conflict, there's some really, really interesting and great reporting from the Medusa project. They reported that Wagner was really slow to the front lines in Ukraine. Uh, because of some ongoing contentious relations between Prigozhin and some some folks within Putin's inner circle. Uh, in other words, he was there was concern that he was going to be, you know, kind of outcasted from that inner ring. And so, other Russian private military firms were kind of the first ones on the front lines in late February. They didn't do so well. You know, early reports were there was a lot of friendly fire, a lot of deaths from friendly fire. You know. I don't want to say incapable, but given how the Russian military performed, it was pretty similar to the larger theme of the Russians didn't do a great job on this kind of initial assault on Ukraine. And subsequently, Prigozhin won some favor with with the Russian elite and, and Putin in particular to and the Ministry of Defense to get Wagner back to Ukraine on the front lines. And so that led to some Wagner personnel recalled from places like Syria and Libya. From sub-Saharan Africa, I mean, the footprint isn't dramatic. We're talking about like a thousand soldiers in Mali. I actually don't know the exact figures in Central African Republic, but there is evidence of some movement away from these other theaters back to Ukraine. And I think that number may continue to uptick as the war continues to drag on. It's really an equation that's difficult to predict because as long as the Wagner Group is successful at recruiting in Russia, it might not have to rely on pulling back, you know, veterans at this point from these other theaters. But yeah, there's definitely some credible reports of some some leaving some of these other places. I just think that you're walking a very fine line if you're the Wagner Group and the Russian government about what signal that might send to future clients. And you know, the health of the Wagner Group and, and Prigozhin in particular wants to continue this kind of aspect of this larger conglomerate of corporations. Um, you have to think about the longevity of the organization and the credibility and legitimacy. So if it doesn't signal positive things to clients in the current theaters that it's located, uh, that could be consequential long-term. I do think that there's some evidence that it might impact, but to the degree to which it's seriously impacting some of its other operations, I don't think it's dramatic yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the flip side of that is to what extent is it making a difference for Russia in the Ukrainian context? So do you think that that involvement of members of the Wagner Group in Ukraine has had a significant impact on the ground? To reference the report I referenced earlier, the Medusa project, I, I think that they had a pretty interesting discussion about the Wagner Group's ability to actually reclaim territory. They were able to, you know, after about two months of kind of, of fighting, seize territory, which illustrated their capabilities uh, in this theater in particular. And so I think that won some favor with the Russian Ministry of Defense, you know, signaled some more legitimacy of this entity. The Wagner Group is uh, a capable fighting force if it already hadn't proven itself at that point. So I, cer I certainly think it matters in the Ukrainian context. 
I'll caveat it with two things. One is you want veteran members of the organization um, because those are the ones that might be capable in this kind of irregular warfare gray zone tactics that the Russians have employed now to full-scale traditional state-to-state combat. The second aspect of that, we don't know the degree to which that translates into effectiveness against Ukrainian resistance, right? Some of the theaters that I look at, you might be developing some capabilities in, in urban combat, but you're not facing the adversary that you're facing in Ukraine. So subsequently, will it really translate to this new kind of conflict theater? It's also going to depend on who they recruit. I mean, I think as I referenced a little bit earlier, if you're starting to dig into undesirable populations who are strictly motivated for a paycheck, there's a lot of questions about how long training will be. Will there be obedient soldiers? And you name it, you get all of these laundry list of questions about capabilities of individuals that are the new recruits in, in this new conflict theater. You know, I think it's important to think about why Russia is using the Wagner Group. Why would they dip into this particular pool? Um, and I think that signals some things about their own capabilities, uh, some things we've talked about before, like domestic politics and whether it's better to use these quasi-state actors as opposed to the actual army. Just that signal that the army's depleted they don't want to rely on conscripts. These folks might offer a solution or at least a short-term kind of viable option. But the other aspect here might speak to where they're going. And one question that's always struck me is kind of interesting is the interoperability between Russian armed forces, the regular military, and the Wagner group. Um, and so in reading some of the, the reporting coming out of here, um, are they standalone private military contractors with their own kind of regiment, if you will, and then working alongside the army. What I've seen is several accounts that suggest they're being sent to work as soldiers within a unit. So those question marks kind of arise in my head about interoperability and whether or not that's going to create some problems moving forward. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that those dynamics on the ground are quite complex. And I mean, my mind is just still stuck on the fact that private military companies are illegal in Russia, and yet Putin must know. I mean, obviously, the oligarch who's heading the whole operation is part of his inner circle. So how does he square that circle? I'd be speculating. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, it makes sense to outlaw them domestically. Uh, and then, you know, the plausible deniability that you, you don't really have control over what these individuals do. It's not Russian. I guess within Russia, it eliminates competition. And I think that's the goal of the regime, right? We make these things illegal. So when one pops up that isn't directly controlled by, you know, one of these oligarchs within the elite or directly by the Russian government, that we can quickly stamp it out as an illegal entity. So I think that's the uh, the only thing I could wrap my head around is a, a logical reason why it's outlawed so you can mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. so. Well, thank you so much, Christopher. Yeah. I appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. and illuminating some of these quite opaque issues for us. Yeah, of course, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.